Hello all and welcome to the first ever episode of Old Everall with Young James Talk Politics in the era where Australia has climate change legislation. Here with Everald Compton as always. How are you, Ed? Well, I'm, I'm fine, Captain Young James. It's good, but we don't actually have the lead. I mean, I'm delighted the bill went through, no, through, you're right. through the Senate and I noticed that the Senate's going to hold it up with some sort of inquiry. But anyway, we've taken the first step. It's through the House. And I think that's uh, where it goes. But let's let's talk about the you know the climate bill to, uh, to to start up. It did get through the house by a very considerable margin because the opposition is obviously in a very much low numbers. But the the independents and, and the Greens finally voted with the government with a you know considerable uh, victory. And from my point of view, it's uh, it, it's writing. In the different pieces of legislation, you know, Julia Gillard passed a law to set up a, a, a price on carbon and it got torpedoed by uh, Abbott, uh, who repealed it. And so we've been through nine years of almost dark ages about the climate. And I think the symbolic thing is that this bill, even though it's truly goes through the Senate, I think they'll have the numbers in the Senate uh, yeah. you know, eventually, uh, is a huge step to write. A decade of, of negligence. What's your view? I mean, I think it's not controversial as between us that 43%, even though it's a floor and not a ceiling, is still probably too low, 43% emission reductions by 2030. And I shouldn't even say probably too low. It is too low. That's a scientific fact. Um, but net zero by 2050 is still, you know, something to aspire to. And if we can get there sooner and if in the future, maybe after the next election, for example, there could even be a stronger teal crossbench, stronger Greens representation, um, and a more emboldened Labor Party to push that floor up from 43% to 57 to 70 to something like that. I know Kylie Tink, one of the independents, uh, one of the teal independents, was uh, pushing for a uh, 75% by 2030 reduction, for example. Um, well, I think that might have been pushing the envelope too, uh, too hard. Look, it is true that Albo went to the election with a very yeah. weak climate policy, but it was better than Morrison's by a long Correct. time. Nevertheless, very weak. At least they've sort of said that, whereas uh, the legislation, when Bowen put it, said you get, they're going to reach uh, uh, a, a certain figure by, by a certain time, that's now been made the minimum figure to be reached. It can, yeah. go, can go higher. So I think that's, uh, there's a bit of flexibility there. It's how flexible is, a, is another matter. This is true. And, and like you said, it, it is the policy Albo took to the election, even though it was weak. And I suppose maybe there would be voters out there who'd feel a little bit betrayed if he jacked up the target to 60% or something. Conversely, you know, the, the Liberals broke election promises all the time when they were in power and no one cared. But um, it always seems like the Labor Party comes under strict scrutiny for those sorts of things um, and feeds into those pretty biased media narratives about how you can't trust the Labor Party with the economy and the like. So um, the Greens, the Greens and the independents can also say that they got elected because they wanted more than that. So if Albo says he got a mandate, the Greens could actually say, well, we yeah. got a mandate too, because we got some more people in the lower house on our man and we now hold the balance of power in the Senate on our on, on our mandate. So the whole issue of who's got a mandate and who hasn't in the final analysis doesn't really mean anything. Yeah. 
right for the Australian people at, uh, you know, at, at any particular point of time. And at least uh, we've got the climate bill uh, on the agenda uh, and there's an opportunity to, uh, to do something. I think that in the Senate, the fact that there's going to be an inquiry, and I don't know how long that will last, I hope it's not too long, shows that in the Senate, the Greens and, uh, and uh, a couple of independents are going to perhaps demand some more changes and that sends the bill back to the House where there's got to be another vote. And so there's a bit of toing and froing going on, but I think one way or another there is going to be a basic climate bill for the first time in a decade that's, uh, that's got to be a, a good thing. And I think we've now got to get on to the positive in this whole matter. The whole issue that, uh, uh, you know, this is going to put the cost of living up, the cost of power up, it's going to bankrupt everybody is absolute nonsense. Because whenever I sit down with a climate change guy who's opposed to it on so-called moral, philosophical, economic, whatever ground, when you say, look, have you ever looked at the possibility that you might be able to make a dollar out of this so you do something to enhance the environment? Now, about not. Now, as soon as you mention that, they're prepared to talk. How can I, if you argue the philosophy, you got name it. If you can get them into a conversation about how they might make a dollar out of climate change, you start to get a different attitude. So there's a fair bit of shallowness out there, isn't there? Yeah, it's a bit silly. I mean, as regards the Senate, first off, um, we, we should note the Greens have agreed that in this form or an amended form, um, but even if they can't get it amended, they will still let it through the Senate. So we will have a climate change uh, law one way or another. Um, as regards to the second point, it's, it's insane the arguments that are thrown up against the wall against taking action with renewables. Like the newest one that the Liberal Party has pulled out at the bottom of the barrel is nuclear power. They're saying, ah, no, 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 Mr Albanese, we're not doing wind, we can't do solar, because what happens when the wind doesn't blow and the sun doesn't shine? We have to do nuclear. Now, this comes out, um, they've done this ever since the election. Funny that they had nine years in power and they never even thought about nuclear. Suddenly they're in opposition and they think nuclear is the, you know, the silver bullet. But um, the CSIRO released a big old study into the viability of nuclear power in Australia. And they basically said it is prohibitively expensive, the fixed costs for setting up nuclear power plants and then getting them operational and online are far, far too high to outweigh any potential cost savings versus renewal, like other forms of renewables, such as solar and wind. Um, we all know that the argument of what happens when the wind doesn't blow and the sun doesn't shine is like unscientific um, dreck. But um, because, you know, like any other form of energy, renewable energy can be stored. I'd like to introduce Peter Dutton to the concept of a battery. Um, but at the end of the day, when it boils down to it, um, all the science says renewables are cheaper, greener, cleaner, and better for the environment. Because obviously for the individual household, setting up solar panels may be expensive, especially if you're renting or you're under mortgage stress. But for the government, for the power grids, for the suppliers, and then for the end energy consumer, um, you, like we've seen on the news in past months our coal and gas plants just breaking down because they're old and crap and not fit for purpose anymore um renewal like that's why renewables on a on a cost basis both for the supplier and the consumer 
are so, so much cheaper in the modern world. Um, they're more efficient. They're, it's, the, the money is with renewables at the end of the day. So like you say, even if you can't get someone on moral grounds, you can tell if they're a, like a, a real kook or just accidentally but innocently misinformed if you put the science about money to well, I would like now for totally different reasons. I don't want to back uh, Peter Dutton saying he's going to hold an inquiry into uh, nuclear energy. It might turn out like Barnaby Joyce's inquiry into the drought. He'll send the text message to the Prime Minister at some point. I mean, you know, it, 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 it's a thing. But I happen to know some scientists in the nuclear industry, and there's a big unit at the University of Queensland that's objectively no political agenda. They've got some donors who are backing them and the donors aren't mad right-wing people. They're scientists with a bit of money. I happen to know. And they're looking into uses of nuclear energy, not just power. And they're pointing out that in modern medicine, in surgery, nuclear energy has a role to play in surgery. And we now make some uh, nuclear energy at Lucas Heights, which enables hospitals to use nuclear energy now. The use of nuclear energy for things other than power uh, is something that could well be looked at. Now, I'm not sure that that's what Morrison's trying to do, but I, I'm a backer of these fellows at Queensland University who are objective scientists saying, how do we use nuclear energy for good purpose in the world? And I don't think that ever should be uh, squashed. No, absolutely. You're entirely right. There are uses other than power. But I, I suppose my big objection is it's become the Liberals' new alleged silver bullet for the transition away from coal and gas. Um, and like we've said, for, for energy, it's just totally not viable. But um, it, it does not surprise me that the party, who all of whose members but one voted against the climate change bill, would not understand the science of climate change. Um, Colour me surprised. <laughs> and the point is that if you did build a nuclear energy plant, it's not an immediate. By the time you did all the research and did everything and, and got your nuclear plant somewhere, and there was some community somewhere in Australia that was happy to have it right next door, uh, and, and you've got to convince some community that they're not going to be the next Chernobyl. And, and uh, part of you, you know, it, it would take a hundred years to actually get a viable nuclear energy, which was cost effective. And so it's not going to help us right now. And you and I'll be underground pushing up daisies long before, uh, you know, any, anything happens. And nuclear energy is not an immediate solution in any shape or form, is it? Exactly. And the, the devil in the detail there is obviously 100 years is far too long to wait to, um, to put climate change to a halt. Yeah. I will say, in, um, in semi-promising ecological and environmental news, I think I saw on the news the other week, um, there's been a bit of like, unbleaching of coral in the Great Barrier Reef. Now, I know some people who are denying um, that you can um, sort of stop the effects of climate change and aren't as, um, I don't see a transition to renewables as, as important. There are some of the arguments that are right off. Well, if it happens, it's, it's too late. You know, we're all, we're all so reliant on coal and gas anyway. All we can do is harm minimization at the moment. And at that point, well, we don't really have to rush to get into renewables. Um, but that like something like a reef unbleaching event at the reef shows that here and now as well, if we act quickly, we can pull back, uh, pull back some of the harm we've already done to the environment. 
we can really, there is a Nareep has certain restorative powers provided you can get clean water. It's got yeah. restorative power. But let, let's just move on from that for a moment to Nancy Pelosi going to Taiwan. Now, I noticed that uh, the Chinese government has now put sanctions on Nancy Pelosi. Uh, 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 I don't think it's going to worry you because I don't think Nancy Pelosi is is a big investor in China or, you know, she's ever going to say, well, I want to buy shares on the China Stock Exchange. I mean, they're doing a lot of posing. They're letting off guns everywhere. They let us know they're disappointed. I, I endorse Pelosi coming there. Uh, now, uh, uh, she's the number three in the hierarchy. I mean, if the president and the vice president crash in an airplane somewhere, the Speaker of the House of Representatives is the president. And so, She's number three in the, you know, in the in the lineup. And I go back to my school days, way back in the 1930s, when the island of Taiwan was called Formosa. And we learned about Formosa, and the Formosan people are an ethnic, ethnic grouping quite different to the Chinese mainland. And gradually the Chinese started to infiltrate it. And when Chiang Kai-shek lost the war with Mao and Mao got into power. Uh, in 1948, Chiang Kai-shek took his defeated army and he said, to Taiwan and took it over. He was an invader then. China invaded then. And the Formosan people are now, like our Indigenous Australians, they're in the background in Taiwan. Now, I'm not saying they're being persecuted, but their land was taken by nationalist Chinese, not communist Chinese, way back in 1948. So we now have a situation where you've got the so-called communist regime in, in, in the mainland. You've got the capitalist regime, the descendants of Chiang Kai-shek in Taiwan, arguing over an island that neither of them owned. It's owned by the Formosan people. And, uh, and I just think that's one of the great travesties of history. There's not a great deal we can do about it. And so uh, anyway, Pelosi's entitled to go there. And if Joe Biden... Now had some guts, he'd go one rung up and he'd send Kamala Harris there, number two. Uh, but, uh, and that'll upset the Chinese some more. And, uh, but uh, that's just a fact of history. And I don't think we should lose an enormous amount of sleep over it. What do you think? Uh, look, um, I'm going to have to disagree with you here. I think Pelosi's an idiot, frankly, but I've thought Pelosi's an idiot long before this. Um, she's got terrible political instincts. She is quite quite realistically, to my mind, a huge part of the reason the Democrats lost the 2016 election and her stranglehold on the Democratic Party over there is something that always puts a stop on progress. Whenever new young members come through the Democratic Party and push the Democratic Party to the left, push, try to push for health care in America, try to push for fairer unemployment in America, racial reconciliation in America, gun control in America, the first person to mock them try to deride them is never Republicans. It's always Nancy Pelosi. Uh, I think this was just needless provocation. Like, yeah, she, as, a, as a free citizen, um, she's obviously entitled to go wherever she wants. But I think Biden was right to say, huh, maybe, uh, maybe don't go to the place where the Chinese government is saying, if you go there, we're going to do a bunch of scary military drills as a response. I mean, I think we're at a time right now where with no Trump, no Morrison, um, relations between the West and China, we should be pushing to really, really 
bring them back to normal and workable levels. And I think if cool heads prevail on all sides, which I think Biden was trying to do, um, we could definitely achieve that. Like there's certainly promising signs out of Australia about our relationship with China is redeveloping. And I think what Pelosi has done by going on a plane over there just to shake some hands and take some photos uh, is, is very selfish, um, given the diplomatic foreign policy goals of the Biden administration. Um, but that's just it. But she's got a political reason for going. First of all, I've read a book about Nancy Pelosi's life. Now, while I think her time has probably come to write off in the sunset, she 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 has done while well, she's done some things that you and I want to debate. She has done, you know, one or two good things. But the whole reason why she went right now is that her party, the Democrats, uh, about to get a hiding in the November congressional election. They may well lose the control of the House and the, and the Senate. Now, she deliberately went there to provoke the Republicans to support her. And this is all part of her trying to say the Democrats are good guys for the election because you'll note that the first people who came out and defended her were the Republicans who in Congress abuse her every day, but they're dead set against China. And so she all of a sudden had a whole pile of Republican senators and, and congressmen cheering her, which I found incredible. So I think it was all about saving the Democrats' bacon in the congressional election. The, am I too cynical? Uh, I don't necessarily think you're wrong. That might be your intention. But I think in terms of actually getting people to vote for Democrats, that's simply not what will convert people. Like, um, here's, a, here's a funny thing with the Democratic leadership. Um, in 2004, the top second and third Democrats at the House of Representatives were Nancy Pelosi, Jim Clyburn, and Staney Hoyer. And in 2022, the top three Democrats at the House of Representatives are Nancy Pelosi, Jim Clyburn, and Staney Hoyer. Now, since 2004, in the Congress, the Republican Party, None of their top three at the Congress at the time is there anymore, uh, replaced with new, fresh faces. And I think we're in a very different political climate to 2004. And this isn't to say just because Pelosi, Clyburn and Hoyer are old, they're not very good at their jobs. It's more they're, they're still doing politics with 2004 glasses on um, rather than 2022 and that, glasses. And that could be. Yeah, that, that could be. Yeah. It, it's very, it'll be very interesting to see how this goes now, my attitude is that Australia should stay out of the battle. And yes, absolutely. That the Americans, uh, you know, do their thing. And uh, the only time that I would get a bit upset would be if there was any threat against Japan out of it all. I noticed that the Chinese have lobbed a couple of rockets in Japanese water. And uh, anyway, that's where we go. But I think we should spend a little more time on the good and bad guys of the week before we, uh, before we run out. Uh, I, I'd like to say that my good guy of the week, uh, and I presume we call male and female guys now, uh, uh, is Tanya Plibersek, who I, is a friend of mine. And, and uh, she has, in principle, and I think it's going to follow through, said she's going to block Clive Palmer's coal mine. Now, this is not his coal mine that he's been trying to build railways to out in the Galilee Basin. This is a coal mine right next to the coast and not far from the barrier reef where they be very easy for the runoff from the mine to get out onto the reef uh, no matter how you clog it up and uh, 
until she knocked it back, and old Clive will probably go to all the courts in the land, and some, some lawyers are now going to make a hell of a lot of money while Clive goes to the courts. I don't know whether your law firm can represent uh, Clive or James, but you'd make a hell of a lot of money. Clive's going to spend a hell of a lot of money going to the courts over this. But I thought um, Plimacek had a lot of guts uh, to do this. But what's, uh, what's uh, impressed me is she has not taken a lot of flack from the right wing in Australia over it because a lot of the right wing in Australia don't want to appear to be supporting Palmer. And so I thought it was a courageous decision and, and, and it's probably the forerunner of some more courageous decisions to stop certain coal mines. In, and now I don't think she's going to ban every coal mine because there are some coal mines further inland who would meet all the environmental qualifications. I think she'll be balanced. But I thought her opposition to Palmer in this uh, was a landmark one, and one in which I think it was good that it was Palmer that she banned, not some remote little company, because I think she could be well aware that there's a lot of the Australian public uh, would endorse anything she did against Palmer just because it was against Palmer. Uh, but she made a good, legitimate decision. How do you see it? Well, exactly. Like I'd, I'd love to see a, a stopper on all new coal and gas projects, um, but I think you're right that you know, the journey of a million miles begins with a single step. And um, to quote from the WA Attorney General, um, John Quigley, in his private text to Mark McGowan, um, that was just recently released, um, to put the big fat man on his big fat ass, specifically referring to Clive Palmer in those texts, was the WA Attorney General, is always a good idea. Um, like Palmer is, you know, he... he outed himself the past two elections as a, as a scum on the, on the butt of democracy. Um, there's a little, little pimple that needs to be popped. And it's very, very good to see any action by a government that basically says, no, Clive, we don't want you here. Um, you know, like subverting democracy by trying to money launder votes to yourself, to anti-vax parties, to one nation, to the liberals through a, $80 million ad spend is frankly undemocratic. And I, you could really probably see, and Clive will probably argue this in the courts, that this decision was politically motivated. Um, even if it was partly politically motivated, it could also be justified on uh, environmental grounds. And just a little uh, legal lesson, if you challenge a decision for improper purpose, improper motive, i.e. Clive alleges Tanya used her cancellation powers for political revenge rather than environmental reasons. From memory, if you have multiple purposes for the exercise of a power, one of which is illegitimate, one of which is still legitimate, um, then you can still um, exercise the power that way. And there right. are definite huge Tanya. environmental concerns. So. Tanya is my hero of the week. Now, take it. you were saying your hero of the week is the the guy that's taken on Clive over in Western Australia. Is that what you're saying? Um, no, actually. So I'll, I'll start with my bad guy of the week while we're on Palmer. And my, my, I'll come to my good guy of the week later. But my bad guy is Clive. His defamation trial against Mark McGowan just wrapped up. Um, that's where, in evidence, those texts about the Attorney General wanting to put the big fat man on his big fat ass came out. They got read into the public record, which is always fun. Um so Palmer sued McGowan for defamation when, uh, for some press conferences McGowan did where when Palmer was trying to get into WA and the hard water wouldn't let him, 
Palmer was demanding the hard water be brought down. McGowan said some things, called him an enemy of the state, rah, rah, rah. And so Palmer sued him for defamation. Now, McGowan, because he was dragged into the courts, launched a countersuit against Palmer because Palmer started comparing him to Hitler and to Stalin and to a bunch of other evil figures in history for maintaining the hard water. When all was said and done, um, after who knows how much public money was wasted in court time, Palmer won $5,000 and McGowan won $20,000. So it's a points victory to McGowan. Um, but the reason I picked Clive as my bad guy of the week is because he's the one who launched the action to begin with. He dragged McGowan into the courts to begin with. Um, and I mean, I think he was just hoping to prove a point. But um, and in, in the end, McGowan proved the point four times as much by getting the $20,000 award. Now, Justice Lee, who heard it, normally in a, in a legal case, costs follow the event, which means if you win or you win more, the other party has to pay a bit of your legal costs. But because of the amount of money pissed up against the wall by both parties, um, both by Clive and by the taxpayers of Western Australia, Justice Lee ominously reserved the question of costs, which means even though McGowan won more, he's going to say, oh, I'm not just going to award costs to the winning party. I'm, I'm going to think about it and come to a decision later. And most lawyers are saying what he'll probably do is make each party pay their own costs. And each party's legal costs would be well into the six figures and would easily, easily eat up any damage award they got. So uh, play yeah, stupid right, games. Well, that, that was your man. You know, he, he's a good guy. Um, my good guy of the week, um, again, another, another parliamentarian, another lady just like yours, Bridget Archer uh, from the Tasmanian Liberals who crossed the floor to vote for climate change legislation. Um, that is awesome. That is brave. And I'm happy she finally got to be a part of making some climate change legislation because she certainly deserves to. Um, not making my good guy of the week this week, but deserving a shout-out shout out is the Nadeza Lincoln family who've just been given permanent visas to Australia. Um, the Billa Wheeler family is officially home because when what happened last time with Jim Chalmers was Jim gave them bridging visas. Now they are here permanently, which is also awesome news. So I suppose I got two, two good guys this week. Well, no, that's good. Now, look, I think the Liberals in Victoria will be planning now to disendorse Bridget Archer for the next election, at which point she would run as an independent, and I think she would win the seat as an independent, and then she could act the way she wants to without worrying about the Liberal Party forevermore. And so the Liberals will never take, uh, the right wing will never take this stuff lying down, but I think they'll do her a good uh, I think that'll do her a good, uh, you know, a good uh, turn. But now, look, my, my bad guys of the week, uh, well, there's actually two of them, I suppose. One, one is the way in which when the climate change bill was going through the House of Reps, it was clearly obvious to even the dumbest person in the building that Alba had the numbers. The Greens were going to vote with him and the Teals were going to vote with him, uh, you know, and a couple of other independents were going to vote with him, like Andrew Wilkie and whatever. And, 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 and he was going to win. Yet they did division after division after division, which they lost by about 30 votes each time. It wasn't as if it was going to be close. Just to hold the House up for an hour over this. And I thought that just was so small-minded and mean. I think they thought that the voters out there would say these wonderful libs are opposing this. What they seemed to have missed was that 
A few years ago, there might have been a majority of people against climate change, but now there is a majority in Australia, not an overwhelming majority. And if they ever want to get back into power, they're not going to get back into power by opposing climate change things. They've got to do something. So I thought that was really mean. But the other one was, and you mentioned it to me just before we came on air, that Pauline Hanson announcing that she's going to oppose the Uluru thing, and you can bet your bottom dollar that her mate Clive Palmer will weigh in and provide a bit of money and weigh in. <laughs> and so yes, I got too, you know, too bad. But Pauline is pretty predictable she was gonna do her thing over Uluru, wouldn't it? Yeah, I mean she she's already released um merchandise for the No campaign, calling it the third chamber of parliament. Um one of the big lines we're gonna hear, because Pauline's already shadowed this as his country Liberal Party Senator Jacinta Price from the Northern Territory. This idea that the voice doesn't do anything to solve Indigenous poverty or crime in the Indigenous communities, so it's not worth it. It's a waste of time. Um, solves for fairly obvious reasons, but if anyone's sort of flirting with that idea, like a, a consultative body for Indigenous people to be able to have their say on legislation affecting them will obviously lead to better tailored community outcomes for future legislation about Indigenous poverty, for future legislation about Indigenous crime. The other thing Pauline's done is outright compare the voice to Parliament to apartheid, which is disgusting, insulting and vile. And I just, you can't say, you can't say it. Well, pure politics on Pauline's, uh, you know, on Pauline's part. Look, I, I, I am an ardent supporter of, uh, of the voice. I'd rather they picked a different title than the voice. I'd rather they called it an assembly or something or other to give it some, some, some stature. But, I don't believe that it's going to solve all the problems with Indigenous Australians or non-Indigenous, uh, you know, Australians. We've been throwing billions of dollars a year trying to buy the black man, or don't use that title badly, but trying to buy their silence. We'll give them money and that has not worked. And so what we're saying is this is just step one in a process where we've got to recognize. And my church decided at a meeting on Thursday night, our, our, our community service arm, that in addition to wanting to support yet the yes vote, we want to form a relationship with an Indigenous church somewhere where we help them, partner them in all the social problems they face, and they can help us too in some of the ones we've got. But, but we've got to be doing things at the ordinary level where we relate to people somewhere. This, this referendum is not going to solve all the Indigenous problems, and we must not promote it as doing that. It is simply acknowledging 65,000 years of heritage. That's all it's doing. It, it, exactly right. And it's giving the Indigenous voice consultation into the laws that affect them on the land that was stolen from them, um, yeah. which is a bare minimum, realistically. Like you say, no one who supports the voice is claiming it's the silver bullet to instantly achieve reconciliation and truth. Um, rather, it's just a, a step on the process and a step to give the indig Indigenous communities um, a greater say in matters affecting them, rather than having sort of, you know, the white man in Canberra legislating on behalf of Indigenous communities. Because, I mean, even Indigenous members of Parliament don't represent necessarily the Indigenous community, they represent the people of their electorate. Um, whereas this voice will give the Indigenous community a way to voice, not veto, voice 
opinions on issues affecting the Indigenous yeah. community. It may be a step in the right direction. Well, I think we've run out of time now, James, but we've had a, a good yarn. It's amazing how many good and bad guys we wanted to talk about. <laughs> we had a few more up this way, but we can save them for some uh, other time. But Parliament goes into recess for a couple of weeks now before it, uh, it uh, comes back. But there's a few uh, things that are going to hit the fan in uh, various ways. Uh, and I think we'll find, while Parliament's not sitting, that the issue of how we're handling COVID is going to come up uh, and more highlighted. And we might chat about that next week in, uh, in one way or another. It's been good to uh, talk to you today, James. And uh, and we'll, uh, we'll keep talking. As always, April, thank you for listening, everyone. And you guys all have a great week. Ciao for now. Ciao now.